Well, let me say it's a privilege to rise up from the midst of you and come up and, and stand in the pulpit and be able to open the Word of God. And my prayer is that this day you will be blessed by what we will look at and that your life will be, you'll leave here encouraged, stronger, because Jesus is greater even while you yourself perhaps have become less. Would you join me in prayer as I just ask the Lord to bless this time once more. Father, thank you again for your word. As we open it up, we realize that this is your God-breathed instruction to us. It is our life. It is life for our spirits and life for our souls. It is that which gives us strength to face the different things in our world as it seems to be falling apart at such a rapid rate. It is this which gives us the, the joy that we find in you. It is this which draws us to yourself, informs us of who you are, of who we are, informs us of all that you've done on our behalf. As we open this today, would you bless it with your Holy Spirit. Use this man to speak your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I doubt if anyone in this room has ever experienced real blindness. Some of us don't see as well as we might like, but real blindness is much different. Um, because that's true, we have trouble completely identifying or imagining what it may, might be like to have never seen light. To have somebody try to describe to us a color or a tree or something like that. One thing that blindness does, it creates in a person who is blind a, a rather necessary type of dependence. When Sherry and I were young and first established in our family, I worked at uh, Purgatory Ski Area just outside of Durango. Yes, I may be the only Christian you'll ever meet who worked his way out of Purgatory. <laughs> I love that joke. I tell it all the time. <laughs> but one year, um, the ski school did something that was really very unusual. A bus pulled up into our parking lot from the Colorado School to Deaf and Blind. And they unloaded a busload of, of blind and uh, visually handicapped people. And the objective was to teach these blind people to ski. So they took them into the uh, rental shop. They met their instructors. The instructors began to outfit them into the skis and the, uh, the boots and the different accoutrements that they would need on the field. And then with a great deal of stumbling about and, and uh, you know, kind of getting to know each other, they finally went out to this big flat area out in front of the main lodge. And there the instructors began to try to help them by putting their feet in certain places and show them how it was to walk on skis and, and to keep from falling and to do different things like that. Then came the real test. They moved from the flat area up to the pommel lift. With a lot of stopping and starting, they finally got them aligned at the top. And the instructors were issued a long pole, about 10 feet long. It was a stout pole. The students had no ski poles, and they held this between them. As the instructor went down the slope backwards, he was trying to teach the student how to weight and unweight his skis and to begin to do a, a basic snow plow to keep himself from going too fast. As the day progressed, they began to stem Christy, and the instructor moved from down below the student to his side, 
holding the pole, and the student grasped his, and sometimes ski to ski, they would begin to move down the slope a little bit. After lunch, the big test. Some of the students had progressed to the point where they were going to try the chairlift. They're going to the top of the mountain and go down a very well-groomed, easy slope with that instructor and nothing but the pole in their hand. Not all the students were able to, to go to the top of the lift. They never had confidence enough to be able to try that adventure, to go into that unknown territory. Some of the instructors were not able to bond with their student well enough to, to form a trust bond that was necessary for the students to be able to, to, to trust them to go into a place where speeds were going to be accelerated and demands were greater. These students were with us for three days, and to my amazement, by the end of three days, some of those students were skiing down the slope by voice command only. They'd gotten rid of the pole, they were listening to the instructor, and the instructor would tell them what to anticipate. There's crud over here where the snow plows have left too much bank of, of, of snow. There's moguls here. You're going to have to get ready to bend your knees and go up and down them. Some of those students did that. I remember one young girl coming down the slope into that basic area where they'd all started, and she just fell over and laid her arms out and said, I've never known such freedom. Now, what was the key? What was the key to that kind of ability? It was trust. As I said, not all the blind students got to the point of being able to ski solo. Some of them never got off the bunny slope. But those that did, did so because they developed complete and implicit trust in their instructors. As they made that journey, it was because the instructors proved to be infallibly trustworthy. They anticipated all that that student was experiencing. They could somehow put themselves into his shoes and experience that slope in the same way he did. And they would tell him, be careful here, turn quickly here, do this, do that. And some of those students had the most marvelous time of their life. The story before us today in John chapter 9 is about an instructor, one that proves absolutely trustworthy. He's completely aware of the total blindness of the man before him, both physically and spiritually. And he's totally aware of the spiritual blindness of each of the different people we encounter in the story. As we begin to look at some of the lessons in this chapter, we have to acknowledge, I have to tell you, we'll never get through all the details of this chapter. What we're going to do is we're going to skip along, plunge down, come up abruptly, and move on. So, you know, get on your reading glasses and let's go. One of the things we have to do is to set everything in, in context, though. If we're to understand this story and why it's in the book, if we're to understand how it fits into our, our lives, we have to understand it, how it fits into John's purpose for writing the book in the first place. Fortunately for us, John is very clear about his purpose. Toward the end of the book, in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he writes, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. 
John's overriding purpose for writing this gospel is evangelistic. He's the latest of the gospel writers. He's aware of what's been written previously by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he's prompted to record things that none of the other writers included. Over 90% of the material in the book of John is unique to that gospel. John's purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus is more than a man, that he is fully God, and that he is he who came to save us from our sins, to pull us out of spiritual blindness. Thus, every incident in the Gospels is uniquely driven by that aim. In the course of the book, John records seven signs. There are many more that Jesus did, but he only pulls out seven. Seven which he desires to highlight that we might come to understand truth, understand that truth, we might put our faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And John couples those seven signs with seven great declarations of Christ. There is I am statements, and again, there are seven of them. Oftentimes, we find a juxtaposition. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he feeds 10,000 or more people. He says, I am the light of the world, and he opens the eyes of a blind man. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he raises a man from the dead. He couples the signs with the statements in such a way and with such clarity that none of the Jewish leaders could possibly misinterpret what he is doing. On at least two occasions in the gospel, coincident to his declaring himself to be an I am, the, the God incarnate, they pick up stones to stone him. Each of those is coupled with one of those I am declarations. And stoning was the requirement of the law, as you well know, for blasphemy. And indeed, it would be foolish for anyone to claim that they're God if they are not. The reason all that has bearing on our look at John 9 is because we find in the healing of a man born blind one of those seven major signs. And it's coupled with one of Jesus' major I am declarations found in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 5. While I'm in the world... I am the light of the world. Declaration is really a sub-theme of the whole chapter. Dramatically, Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and then bringing his words to life, he causes eyes that have been bound in darkness since birth, which have never beheld a twinkling of light, to perceive light for the first time. Even more dramatically, the man who was born blind comes to see spiritually. And that's in accord with John's opening statements in his prologue. The prologue, the first 18 verses of the book of John, set out the major themes that John's going to cover in the rest of the book. They sort of give us a preview of where he's going. They're all offered as proof that Jesus is God. And one of those proofs centers around the issue of light. All men are spiritually blind without light in their souls. And John is speaking of Jesus, and John 1, 4, and 9 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. To help us grasp better this metaphor that John wants us to understand, this metaphor of light, we need to think of the effects of light. Near our house is a field. I have a German Shepherd, and I take our dog out there at least once a day so they can sniff and do other things and chase the occasional rabbit. 
Well, in that field is an old pump house that's long since been kicked over by some teenagers and left to, to go to rack and ruin. And there are boards scattered about that pump house. Well, the other day, with the proliferation of flowers and weeds and the profusion of growth that's taking place, I kicked over one of those boards. And I noticed two effects of light. The first dramatic effect of exposure to the light were the bugs and squirmy things lying underneath it. They became immediately uncomfortable and they began to scramble and try to dig into the ground or to get out of the way and back into the recesses of the grass growing around. The second effect was upon the grass and the weeds that were lying beneath the board. Every one of them was pale and sickly compared to the healthier weeds around them. They'd been deprived of light and they were barely able to exist, very unhealthy. Two days later, they're standing strong, their colors returned because they are absorbing the light. Two effects. Some flee from it, some embrace it. These are the effects of Jesus coming into the world. These verses that opposed Christ could not abide his light. They hated Jesus for exposing them for what they were. They hated his righteousness, which showed up their sinfulness. That becomes clear in another passage in John, speaking of light. John 3, 19 through 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. As we'll see, the true light coming to some makes them strong and healthy. To others, they scurry away. Perhaps you've experienced that. Perhaps you've tried to be a righteous man at your job or a righteous woman at your work. Perhaps you've tried to express an ethic that is opposed to the world. Perhaps something just as simple as not swearing like so many other people do. And you find yourself being avoided, talked about. People don't feel comfortable in your presence because you're not like them. That's the effect of the light. And it's a good effect upon the world. It's a necessary effect. So that's John's introduction, or the introduction to all this. Now the sermon starts. John 9, 1 through 12. The blind one receives his sight. You have an outline in your bulletin there, and you can try to write notes. I hope you can find space there. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Let's stop right there. We looked at some of the broad context of the story. Now we have to take a closer look at the closer context. Look with me just above that to the last verse in chapter 8. We read there, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is following his usual practice. He's been in the temple confines in that area, and he's been teaching in the temple court. As he has done so, he's made some very provocative statements. He has made it known that he is the son of his father in a familial, very familiar relationship. He calls him father, not as the Jews did. In juxtaposition, he has also called out the leaders of the Jews. He said that they don't have the same father he does. Rather, their father is, a, is the devil in verse 44 of chapter 8. The result of that confrontation has been that the Jews 
a designation that John frequently uses for speaking of the Jewish leadership which opposed Christ, have sought to stone him. Jesus has hid himself, and he's walked out of their midst. Now, we don't know how he did this. The scripture doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that the Jews were in a murderous mood as Jesus walks to their midst to the outer part of the temple. In John 9, 1, having just walked away from that ugly lynch mob, Jesus is outside the temple. Read the words again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It's a casual mention, but I think it's noteworthy. How many of you, myself included, would have just been in a building where a major confrontation took place, the people have gathered around us with the intent of actually murdering us, and we walk out, and on our way, escaping that lynch mob, we notice a homeless man sitting against the outside of the building. You and I wouldn't do that. We'd be intent on escape. But Jesus isn't like us. He's not running for his life. He's steadily moving on with his mission to enlighten the eyes of every man. His timetable is the Father's timetable. His escape from the mob was actually calmly done in light of the truth that his hour had not yet come, something that John states over and over again. Jesus' notice of this blind man, though, was fairly significant. He must have stopped and looked at him because his disciples pick up on that. Verse 2, the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? They'd be born blind. They perceive Jesus' interest. But what is implied in this passage in his statement is that this man is a familiar sight around the temple. He's known to the people. How else would the disciples have known they'd been born blind? He must have been a regular presence there in that area. Disciples, though, ask a perceptive question. Who sinned? This man or his parents, culturally, in an age when God ruled more, and man ruled less, the disciples had a strong belief in the sovereignty of God, that he governed every life and all the events within that life. And that's true, but they still had a misperception of that truth. They perceived that blindness was a bad thing. This man had suffered a bad thing, and there had to be a reason for it. Sin resulted in bad things, they reasoned, so the thought was that this man must have sinned, but then again, how could he have sinned? He was born blind before he'd ever done anything. So their reasoning leaped. It must have been his parents that had sinned, and that's what they're trying to get to the bottom of. That was the cultural perception, not only of the disciples, but also of the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, as we see down in verse 34, where they tell him, you were born entirely in your sins. But that's not how Jesus sees the man. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples see a sinner, someone they wouldn't have noticed if Jesus hadn't. Someone struck because of some sin somewhere and justly bearing out the fruits of the life of sin they've lived. That's how they saw him. Jesus sees him differently. Jesus sees a life lived for this very moment that God's work might be displayed in him. Now, there are a couple of lessons for us reachable here. 
that you might want to grasp as we look at this. First of all, don't miss the implications for salvation here. The blind man could not, that's a statement of ability, could not see Jesus. But Jesus saw him. Jesus takes note of him. Jesus speaks to him. Jesus acts. God always initiates salvation. It's always his initiative. The second thing that comes out of the story is that there are no pet answers to human suffering. One life may be richly blessed with health and prosperity, while another life is a long slog through pain and difficulty that is weary and wearying. Human suffering can have multiple purposes according to what the scripture explains to us under God's good hand. First of all, it can be corrective. Someone has indeed strayed from God and they're suffering the consequences. God sees them walking away. God allows or directs suffering into their life with a purpose of bringing them back, of helping them find their limits and realizing that they've backed away from relationship. We see this disciplinary nature of suffering in many places in the Old Testament. One place I'd point you to is Judah's exile into Babylon. They committed idolatry over and over again. God exiled them for 70 years. And the effect of that discipline was, a, was good. When they came back into the land, they never strayed again into idolatry. New Testament clarifies how this might work in your life or mine, this corrective aspect of discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, and then verse 11. We read there, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are disciplined by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Scourging is a pretty brutal term. It means that he'll bring some strict consequences sometimes into our lives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you have suffering in your life, difficulty comes in, it behooves you to ask, to look at the suffering and examine yourself and say, is this God's corrective purpose in my life? Is he trying to let me know that I'm moving in a direction I should not be moving? Will it drive me back to him? Will it drive us to repentance and to a return of God? So suffering can be corrective. But secondly, suffering can be constructive. That is, character building. My dad died when I was eight. My mom was at a loss what to do with two young, ornery, that's a polite word, boys who were getting into everything and definitely headed for trouble. One day, a car showed up, a pickup actually, my Uncle Jim. He was a dairy farmer in another part of our state. Before I knew it, a back bag was packed and I was in the front seat with my Uncle Jim and I was headed for his dairy farm. What did I find there? Up every morning at 4 o'clock, milking cows. 
then leaving the barn after it's cleaned up and going into the field, changing irrigation water for corn. Then there was lunch, and it was into the fields to cut silage and hay out of the alfalfa fields. Then back into the barn for the evening milking. And then after the evening milking and dinner, back out to the cornfield to change the water one more time. Every night I fell into bed, and I don't think I even thought about sleep. I just was asleep when I hit the bed. Now, was that hard? You bet it was. But was it life-changing? It was. It was character building. I learned I could work. I learned I could learn to do things that I'd never had a chance to do at my home. I learned that there was what it was to work beside another man and to watch that man carry out the hard, grinding toil of life and do so with a cheerful spirit. And I learned something about being a man. Moses speaks of that same character-building effect of suffering in the life of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, he says, You shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So suffering can be character-building. God can sometimes allow us to go through difficulty just simply to build something into us to make our faith stronger. Thirdly, suffering can be given solely to bring glory to God. And I think that this is, without doubt, the hardest of the reasons for suffering for us to wrap our arms around. This is the reason, though, that Jesus gives for this blind man, being, this man being born blind. It was for this moment that I might encounter him, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think about that for a moment, would you? A life, we don't know how long, but a life spent handicapped in darkness, dependent upon other people, suffering with no word from anyone as to why this might be taking place until this moment of encounter with Jesus Christ. Someone may ask, do you mean to say that a life like mine can be filled with suffering and pain just so that God might be glorified? Now, hard as it is to think about that or to realize it, isn't that the real purpose for the whole of Job's life? God encountered Satan, pointed out Job. Satan challenged God and said he only obeys you because of the things you give him. And God said, take him. Do what you will with him within these limitations. Job never knew what the purpose of all that was. The contest centered around the figure of Job, and Job was in the dark as to why it was going on. God allowed it, not only allowed it, but initiated it. Wasn't that the ultimate purpose for which Jesus allowed Lazarus to die? So that Mary and Martha, as Jesus said to them, would see the glory of God? Here I want to quote James Boyce from his commentary on John. He says, Would God Almighty permit a man to be stripped of his family and all of his possessions, to be struck with such illness that he would find himself sitting in ashes, bemoaning that he had ever been born just so that God himself might be vindicated? Would God permit a man to be struck with total blindness throughout the better part of his life so that in God's own time, he might become the object of a miracle performed by the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Would God permit a child of his to die, bringing suffering not only upon himself, but also upon his sisters who mourned for him, just so God could be glorified? In the light of the word of God, we answer not only that God would do such things, but that he has done them, and indeed continues to do them, in order that he might bring victory for himself. And all believers in that great invisible war between the powers of good and evil will look on and understand better. Moreover, those who know God will know this and in part understand it. They will rest in knowing that God is perfect and loving and that all he, that he does all things well. End quote. Every life, yours, mine, has troubles. There are hard things that come to us. Our comfort is that Above it all is our good and loving God. And he has purposed these things for his reason, and they are good. Let me ask you, are you suffering perhaps? Do you trust God in the midst of it all? Will you allow, with a trusting heart, God to accomplish his intended purpose through your affliction? Looking again then at John 9, we see in verse 4 and 5, Jesus speaks and he says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As this is being spoken by Jesus, he's walking away from that lynch mob. A little insight. Verse 14 tells us that these events take place on the Sabbath day. Jesus spoke of working. And working the works of him who sent me. That's a clue as to what Jesus' purpose here is here. Most of his conflicts with the Jews were over Sabbath keeping, over issues of man-made rules that they'd imposed upon the society. Once again, he's willfully demonstrating he is Lord of all, especially Lord of the Sabbath. The Jews had made the Sabbath a day in which God had tended to bless man into an onerous day, so restrictive, so forbidding to show mercy that even a sick person could not be helped unless their life was threatened. Now, this blind man's been blind a long time. He's not imminently in danger of life. Why does Jesus do what he's doing here? Why this use of the words work and works? And then that deliberate manner of spitting on the ground and, and making mud and applying it to his eyes. What is Jesus doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's picking a fight. He knows that, that action is going to further stir up the already incensed Jews. It's going to send them scrambling and angry like those dark, squiggly things under that board when it's exposed to the light. Jesus is on a, the divine timetable. He's headed with deliberation toward a day in not too distant time when men will indeed seize him. They will treat him as they will. They'll finally put him to death on the cross. That's why he says with such earnestness, we must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Part of his purpose in coming to earth, as you know, is to fully reveal God to man. He's about to perform a work, a significant work. And as the blind man will testify, it's a work that can only come from God. This work, this bringing of light to the eyes of the man, in born in blindness is coupled with one of Jesus' great declarations, I'm the light of the world. It's a claim to deity. The physical sign, the healing, will bear witness to the spiritual truth. 
that he is the bringer of light to eyes that are spiritually blind also. The work, the one which cannot be denied, will cause hearts to either harden and slide away from the light or to embrace the light and come into the fullness of truth. And there's a further truth here that we need to understand because it has bearing on our lives. Jesus knew that he was terminal. He knew that death awaited him in a short time. There's only so much time for him to to be about the works of the Father and to make him known. You know, that's true of us. I look out upon you today and I realize you're all terminal. There's only so much time allotted to any one of us upon the earth. Scripture lays out clearly. We've been brought into the knowledge of the truth of the Son of God. We've embraced Him as our Savior that we might work works that reveal Him to the world around us. Ephesians 2.10 makes that clear. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Let me ask you a convicting question. Are you consciously living in light of the fact that your time is short? Yeah, I'm almost 70 years old. My son and I were talking just the other day, and he said to me, he said, Dad, you've been talking about death more than I ever remember you talking about. Do you know why? I realize that my glass is a lot emptier than it used to be. Time is short. I don't know how much I have. I get up in the morning and I say, it all works. Praise God. I love it. You know, but I don't know what tomorrow holds. I really don't know. And I'm trying to live my life conscious of the fact that I only have so much time. I only have so much time to make my, the light known to neighbors around me. I only have so much time to make it known the truths of God as I, I have the privilege of teaching in this church. Are you spending your life in light of the fact that you're terminal? Are you spending your life in light of the fact that it's going to end someday? Now is the time to exalt Christ in your life. Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on. <laughs> Verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of spittle, and he applied the clay to the eyes, to his eyes, and he said to him, Go and wash at the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. So he went away and he washed and he came back seeing. Continuing with this theme of work, Jesus provoking the, the Pharisees, picking that fight, he does a very provocative means of healing. He spits on the ground, he makes mud with his fingers, and then he smears it over the eyes of this guy. You know, this has caused commentators to wax eloquent about, oh, why did he spit on the ground? One guy was writing, he said, well, we know that saliva has healing properties. And he spit on the ground, and he rubbed the guy's eyes so that the healing properties from the saliva could begin to heal his eyes. And I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful? No need to take grandma to the eye doctor and have her cataracts removed. Just spit on the ground, make mud, give her a facial, and it's all done. You know, it has nothing to do with that. And there's similarly far-fetched, idiotic ideas that these commentators come up with. You know, I said because... Let me tell you why I think Jesus did what he did. He did it because he's being provocative. He's starting that fight. The Pharisees had made the Sabbath so restrictive 
a man wasn't allowed to drag a chair across a dirt courtyard because it might make a furrow, and they equated that with plowing. You know, they just had made this, this day onerous. And Jesus said, there's a work that needs to be done for this man to see. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm going to do a work. And it's going to be a work that everybody's going to know. Because in a little while, he sends that guy on an unfamiliar journey to the Pool of Siloam. As that guy goes, he's got mud all over his eyes. He's asking directions. People are going, what happened to you? What is that on your eyes? And he tells them, this man named Jesus, he made mud. He smeared on my eyes. He told me to go. I'm going. Can you tell me how to get there? And everybody goes, that's work. You can't do that. And the people are drawn in. Who is this Jesus who's doing this work, this provocative thing? Jesus is telling the, the men in tacit way that a work of God has to be done in the life of every man. And that's the second implication. If men are to see spiritually, it takes a work of God. It might not be as obvious as making mud smearing on your eyes, but it's that obvious in the soul of the person who's coming into the light. For men to see spiritually, God must work. And yes, he even works on the Sabbath. Thirdly, Jesus doesn't want to provoke just those who are watching, the disciples and the others. He wants to provoke something in the man himself. Why make mud and command him to go and wash? Well, let me tell you why I think he did that. Blind people eventually adjust and become quite comfortable with their prescribed world. This man had been blind a long time. No doubt he knew how to get up and and get around in his own house. No doubt he knew how to make his way out of his house, down some familiar corridors to the temple. No doubt he was familiar with the area of the temple, and he could find his way to this particular spot outside the gate. He'd accommodated himself to his blindness. Jesus anoints his eyes with mud, commands him to go to an unfamiliar place. He's trying to shake him out of that complacency. He's trying to make him freshly aware of just how limited he is. Can you imagine this man as he makes his slow way to the pool of Siloam? He doesn't know where there are pits in the road. He doesn't know where there's obstacles in the way. He's constantly having to ask people, can you show me how to get there? Can you tell me where to go? He's constantly having to bump into things, move around them, excuse himself. He makes a very troubled, very helpless, very insecure journey. But at the end of it, and even as he goes, he's freshly aware of just how limited he really is. That's a real necessary lesson for us. We are so accustomed to making our own way. You have a financial problem? What do you do? You sit down and you immediately decide, how can I fix this? How can I get the money to solve this problem? Who are you looking at? You're looking at yourself. Sometimes God brings circumstances in our lives to shake us out of ourselves and say, you, my friend, can't do anything for yourself. You need help. Then we pray, right? That's what we do. Jesus has asked this man, to commit an act of obedience based upon faith. 
We're going to learn a little later that he really didn't know much about Jesus. Jesus had anointed his eyes. The man walks away in obedience to do what Jesus commanded him to do. But the man doesn't know anything about him. Later on, they ask him, who did this? A man called Jesus. That's all he knows. A man called Jesus told me to do this. It's an act of faith, but God often calls upon you and I to act in faith without assurance of the knowledge of what's going to take place ahead of us. That was the case with Jairus. Remember the synagogue official whose daughter was ill? He came to Jesus while Jesus was on his way to his house, found out the, the daughter had died. Jesus looked at the man and he saw the man had lost faith. He was in despair. Jesus speaks to him and he says, Fear not, only believe. How many doubtful thoughts entered the mind of that man as he made that journey? What's the point of this? I've washed my eyes in other places. It hasn't done any good. This is a foolish task I've been set to. Why do you make it so hard? Why do I have to make this journey? But all the way through that, he kept going, acting on faith. The man Jesus told me to do this. I'm going to see it to the end. Sometimes you and I have to struggle through sickness or whatever it might be in our lives without having any real idea of why it's taking place. But the journey is profitable. The experience is important. It builds faith. And that's what's happening with this man. We have the promise of Scripture. It always holds out a lot of promise to us. We're all familiar with that passage in Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God. For those who are called according to a purpose. We have Philippians 2.13. It is God who is a work within you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God never abandons us. He never forsakes us. He is at work within us every day, accomplishing his purpose in our lives. He will always be there. There's a purpose in the struggle you're going through. The blind man could not see the purpose. He assuredly had many doubts, but he obeyed and he persevered. Could I encourage you to do the same? Angels are watching. Angels are watching to see how we're working out our salvation. And can I say this to each one of you also? That's part of the body of Christ. Do you know that we're watching you as you struggle through things? We want to see you grabbing hold of faith. We want to see you struggling forward and not giving up on Christ. You know what that does to us? It encourages our hearts. Because when something slams into us, we say, you know, if John or Mary or Mike, if they could hang in there, I could hang in there too. We draw strength from each other in that way. Therefore, the neighbors, verse 8, and those who had previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, nah, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. And they were saying, how then were your eyes open? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. There's a lot I'd like to say here, but in the interest of the time we have left, I just want to expose you to one. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. He answered, 
The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. A miracle has been accomplished. The man has gone and he's washed. He's come back to the confines of the temple. People are talking about him. Doubts are expressed as to whether he's the one or not. Many questions are asked. He explains to his best of his ability what has happened. But the great question here is not what happened. It's not how was this done. The great question is who did this? And the man begins to hone in on that central truth. The man called Jesus. He really doesn't know anything beyond that point. At this point, he's, he only knows that it was a man named Jesus. He had instructed him, he had anointed him, he had obeyed him, and now he, he sees. But there's an awareness, an awareness dawning, not just in the eyes of this man who can suddenly see, but in his very spirit. The man has had that diffusion of light come into not just his blind eyes, but into his spirit. It reminds me of the fourth stanza of Charles Wesley's famous uh, him, and can it be, long my prison spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The light of the world has diffused in that miraculous way that God must do in every experience of salvation, that quickening ray into the heart of this man blind in sin. He's waking up spiritually. The crowd around him are asking, what did he do? How did he do it? The man is honing in on an important part. It's the who. Our trust isn't in how. Get a diagnosis from the doctor. Immediately it's how do we take care of this? And we're thinking medically. The greater question is, who brought this? Who is it that wants me to listen to him? What do I do? And we keep our eyes on Christ. Amen? And that's really the theme that plays out from this point on. So we've seen the blind man receive his sight. Next section, um, the blind one receives a hearing. Believe me, I'm not going to go as long on this point. You're going to have to bear with me because we're barely going to touch down. I wanted to read this and I realized, oh, I can save three minutes of my sermon if I don't read it. So I'll just leave it there and we'll dip down into it. But what we see in this is a great deal of questioning. People are asking him, asking about him. Is this the one? Others are asking, how was this done? The Pharisees are questioning, how did Jesus do this? Then they're accusing Jesus of having done it on the Sabbath day, of being a sinner and not being a godly man. And all of that, they're looking way past this miraculous thing that has happened. They're looking way past that because their eyes are on the wrong things. And isn't that a little bit dismaying to you and I? Wouldn't we expect that those who are ministers to major on mercy and rejoice that this man has been healed? Wouldn't we expect that those around the temple who had known this man, who had seen the difficult life he lived, to find joy that he suddenly has his sight back? Wouldn't we expect his parents 
who had borne the brunt of this beggar's handicap, who had suffered with him, wouldn't we expect them to rejoice in, in with him at what is taking place? But that's not what we find at all. Instead, we found for most people is the curiosity. How, who, what, what? You know, by others, it's an inconvenience. This isn't the man who was born blind. I mean, what do we have to say about him? Others, it's a downright affront. That's what it was to the Pharisees. But to all, to all, it's a point of light. It shines. It reveals. And what it reveals is the true state of the heart. As we look at the players in this drama, there's Jesus. Now, at this point, Jesus is withdrawn. Jesus has left the building. As a formerly blind man says in verse 12, I don't know where he is. But it's not correspondingly true that Jesus is not aware of the things that are taking place. Verse 35 makes it clear that Jesus knows exactly what is happening with this man. Jesus, having heard that they put him out of the temple, finds him. There's a lesson here for us. And you need to heed it well. Just because you don't see Jesus in the midst of your difficulty, don't make the mistake of thinking that God is absent. He's aware of all that you're going through. Not just aware, but he's at work, guiding it all to his own ends. And in that, I think you can rest. You can rest in saying God's in charge. God's at work. I trust. Then there are the Pharisees. Now, we're sufficiently well taught in this church to know who these guys are. They're the opposition, the Jews, as John labels them. The guardians of doctrine, they're zealous for the law. That was their surface appearance. But what underneath really motivated these guys? First of all, we know from other scriptures that they were jealous of Jesus. That was the conclusion of Pontius Pilate when he tried to release Jesus at his trial. Matthew 27, 17 through 18 says, So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they'd handed him over. Out of envy. Jesus is drawing crowds. Jesus is doing works of God. People are listening to him. People are following him. Oh, I wish I was like Jesus. I wish I could do what he does. I hate him. Their testimony further confirms it. After raising of Lazarus, chapter 11, previous to the arrest of Christ, these lords of society met together to decide what to do about Jesus. John 11, 47 through 48 says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, What are we doing? This man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans, the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. All men will believe in him. The Romans will come and take our place. That's the priority. Men, this is a great enterprise we got going here. We have a lot of prestige in society. We make a lot of money off of this gig. He's going to mess it all up. We have to do something about him. Their hearts are dark. They're not truth seekers. They refuse to see anything but what they want to see. What do they say about Jesus? At first, it seems like they're curious as to what took place, verse 15 of chapter 9. 
Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he'd received his sight. But in reality, they're only seeking confirmation of what they already believe. Therefore, some of the Pharisees, verse 16, were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Verse 24, So a second time they called the man who had been born blind said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 28, They reviled him and they said, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he's from. You know what their problem is? He doesn't fit the mold of the Messiah they're expecting. Because he does things in a completely different way, because he is God, they won't give him any credit for what he's done. They look past a blatant miracle that no man has ever done anywhere in the scriptures, and they can't see God in it because they refuse to see him for what he is like. I don't know if you've ever had that problem. You know, we meet somebody, we interact with them a little bit, and we form an opinion, don't we? And you know what? Once that opinion is formed, it's pretty hard for us to ever back away from it. Somebody has God working in their life. They quit doing this and they quit doing that, but you know, they still got this one thing they do not a very healthy habit, not a very good thing. Well, unless they break that, they're probably not a Christian. I can't have fellowship with them. I can't rejoice in the things God's doing in their life. They're just doing that out of willful behavior, behavior modification. We can't see God at work in their life because they don't conform to all that we think they must conform to. Do you ever form judgments of people like that? Can you back up, give them a fresh view? Can you look at them in a different way and say, you know, God's at work in this person and rejoice in that? The Pharisees could not do that with Jesus. Then we have the parents. The parents know that this is their son and they've been healed. They should have been ecstatic, but they focus on the wrong things. The Pharisees questioned them in verse 19 saying, Is this your son, whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes, we, we don't know. Ask him. Ask him. He's of age. Yeah, put the question to him. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. You know, the parents aren't completely truthful there. They did know that there was a who involved. We see in verse 21, how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. But because of their fear of the Jews, of the leadership around them, of their bosses over them, these societal monitors. They refuse to answer the question. A great gift has been given to them by God. But because of their love for themselves, because their love for themselves is stronger than their love for their son or for God, they refuse to answer. And they slide away from it. I hate to say this, but 
I don't know if you're a parent and you've been guilty of that. Your kid does something stupid and embarrasses you and you fly off the handle and you yell at him instead of realizing he's just a kid. He's just acting as an immature person and trying to do what is best for that child and love him. Instead, you fly off the handle, exhibiting all the grace and truth of Christ. Don't we do that? We often, often slide away from responsibility. These parents virtually denied their son. Think how much that had to hurt this man who'd already suffered a great deal. Then we have the blind man. Finally, we see this man's reaction to light. Notice the progression through the chapter there. First, he knows him as the man Jesus. Then he knows him as a prophet. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? For he opened your eyes and he said, he's a prophet. His reasoning is sound. He says after the Pharisees labeled Jesus a sinner, verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind. And now I see the effect of the miracle, the effect of this diffusion of that quickening ray is an enlightenment of reason. We see that fleshed out even more clearly in verse 31 and following. Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, and it's never been heard, that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this person were not from God, he could do nothing. What's happened here is opposition has come. Opposition causes some people to slide away from the truth, to compromise, to get away from pressure. For this man, the opposition brings a pressure that enlightens his reason hardens his, his heart towards those statements and softens it towards Jesus. Trials of opposition that come into your life or mine may have that exact design to strengthen your resolve as a believer. None of us like to be on the opposition side. No one likes being a misfit in a group, one who stands out, the one who doesn't go along with the crowd. Given a chance, we'll sift away, we'll back away if we can. That's what the parents did. They didn't really lie. This was their son. He had been born blind. But then they walked away from responsibility. Not so the man. It caused him to actually become more and more bold to speak deeper and deeper truth. May that be the result of opposition in your life. You have a family member that is opposed to the gospel, you're going to a celebration of, of um, Memorial Day. And you know that family member's going to be there. You want to pray for the dinner, but you know they won't like that and they'll be vocal about it. What's that opposition going to do for you? Is it going to cause you to slide away? Or is it going to cause you to step up and say, I believe this food came from the hand of an almighty good God and I'm going to pray his blessing upon his meal. Where does God want you to stand? Will the opposition enlighten your faith? And will it increase your faith so that you become the man that God wants you to become or the woman that God wants you to become? 
The family, man finally reasons, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is more than the darkness-loving Pharisees can handle. They react, verse 34, you were born entirely in your sins, and you were teaching us, so they put him out. That action seems trivial to you and I. There's another church down the road. We can just go down there and sit. But it wasn't trivial for the Jews. His worship in the temple was everything. His membership in the community was everything, economically, socially, and in every way. Here's this man who's finally cleansed, finally can see, he can finally enter the temple, and the Pharisees have put him out. It had to be a serious blow, a very strong test to this newly burgeoning faith in this man. But even so, Jesus tells us when we encounter such opposition, we're to think of it as an honor. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when you are opposed by those who oppose Christ. Finally, I just want to quickly finish up here. 9.35 through 41. The blind sees while the seeing are blind. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Boy, I'd love to camp here, but I can't. I've already waxed too eloquent previously. But I want to say just a couple things to wrap this up. I want you to see Jesus. In the first part, he's fleeing from a mob or he's walking away from a mob who's seeking to put him to death and he notices the man. Here we find him again after the man's been expelled from the temple. We don't know where this man is. He's obviously not in the temple. It doesn't seem like there's any people around him. He's outside somehow looking in and wondering what's happening. Jesus hears that that has happened. And what does he do again for this fledgling new believer? He comes and he finds him. He seeks him out. As he did initially, Jesus seeks him out. Get this, never think. Never think that you are in a place or a circumstance where Jesus can't find you. Never think that he who died for your sins won't seek you out in the midst of trouble and try to give you exactly what you need at that time. Now, I want to see you to see a second thing. Um, you millennials, wake up and listen to what I have to say here. Jesus comes, but he doesn't address the superficial need of the man. He addresses the real need. He doesn't come up to him outside the temple and say, Are you okay? He doesn't come up to him and say, Simon, Andrew, 
Men, gather around. We need a group hug. You know? He doesn't offer him a back rub. He doesn't offer to restore him to the temple. Instead, he says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that's really the crucial question in salvation. This is God acting in salvation. He sees a man in a pitiful condition. He restores sight to him. The man is cast away from his friends and his family. He's going through a lot of suffering and trial. Jesus seeks him out, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? You know that's what he does sometimes in the midst of your trial and mine. He comes to us and he doesn't give us a group hug. He says to him, do you still believe in me? Are you still going to follow me? Do you still trust me, even in the midst of all this? And our answer has to be like that of the man. Lord, who is he that I might believe in him? He whom you now see and who speaks to you am he. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. That needs to be our response in trial. It's got to be worship. It's got to be turning to God and saying, Lord, I don't know all that you're doing. I can't fathom all that you're affecting through what I'm going through here either in my life or the lives of those around me. But Lord, I trust you. I know you love me. I've seen that proof over and over again. I'm going to draw on the reserves of that strength, and I'm going to worship. And Lord, I give you thanks for all I'm going through. The question there is, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Pharisees did not believe. The Pharisees had seen this incredible miracle. All through the book of John, we see these miracles done that no man could do unless it is God at work. And we see Jesus claiming to be God, doing those works, and they cannot see. You ever wonder how they could be so stupid? You ever wonder that? Basically, they see what they want to see. Now, we've all been sitting here almost an hour, okay? Some of you have been here longer than that. You've walked in this room, you've looked around and so forth. Let me ask you, how many blue things have you seen in this room? In fact, right now, just stand up, go ahead, look around, count how many blue things you see. Some of the women are going, man, why did I wear blue today? But, you know, how many, count them, count them. How many blue things do you see in this room? Some of you are looking at your wife like, do I dare look around, you know? (laughs) How many blue things do you see? Anybody find 10? All right, we got some 10. Anybody find 12, 15? 15, wow. Okay, now close your eyes. How many of you saw five red things? Why don't we see the red things? Because we're not looking for them. We're only seeing the blue things. That's what we're counting. You know, sometimes we get a view of God. He's got to act like this. He's got to do things in a certain way. And when he doesn't, we become disappointed. We lessen our commitment to him, to the relationship. Oh, we do the rituals. We come to church. We go through all the different things. But we really have backed away from the relationship. We've lost hope and we don't believe it actually is at work in our lives. Somehow his love has skipped over us. The Pharisees could never accept Jesus for who he was. 
because they didn't meet their expectations. I think that's the fault of many people in the world, all too often people in the church. We don't allow him to be God, to work the work that he wants to work in our lives in the way that he wants to work it. Would you take from this sermon an attitude of worship? Will you go back home? Will you examine your life? Will you begin to recount the many ways in which God has blessed you? Will you let him revive your faith and give you new hope, especially those who are struggling in the midst of something? Would you let a spiritual diffusing ray once again enlighten your hope and brighten your eyes, the eyes of your spirit? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the day and for this word, inadequately presented in some ways, but Lord, hopefully enough truth here for us to grab hold of and to move forward. Thank you, Father, for this story. Thank you for the work you did in the life of this man. Thank you for his faithful testimony that he persevered through all the trials, not knowing everything, but knowing one thing, that it was you who had expressed your love toward him, and he rested in that. May we leave here today strengthened by the knowledge that it is you who will work to will and to do in our lives according to your good pleasure. And that good pleasure is always for our best and for your glory. We commit the rest of the day to you in Christ's name.